Hello and welcome. My name's Dr. Joanna Bucknell, and you're listening to episode 27 of Tate, which is T-A-I-T, which is talking about immersive theatre. Happy New Year! So this is the first episode of 2022 and the first of 12, I do hope. <laughs> Things are a little hectic, so I'm hesitant to make promises, but I'm hoping to at least get an episode out a month to you in 2022. That would be amazing. So in this episode, I jump into the Zoomosphere and cross the Atlantic to Minnesota to talk to John Heimbuch, who is the Artistic Director of Walking Shadow Theatre. Um, there's not a lot more for me to introduce because we, we really do get into some really interesting discussion during this episode. So I am just going to let you have at it. So uh, hello and welcome, John. Is it Heimbuch? Heimbuch, yeah. Heimbuch, okay, excellent, thank you. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for taking the time to join me because I know you're incredibly busy at the moment. Yeah, well, opening a show. Yes, which we will talk about uh, in, <laughs> in due course, I promise. Um, so we're in the Zoomosphere talking to each other um, from across the Atlantic, which is kind of exciting. Very. <laughs> so I'm here... Um, in the UK, just outside of Birmingham, in a small place I'm not even going to mention because no one's going to know where it is. So Birmingham. <laughs> and you are in Minneapolis, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, Minneapolis, yep, in, in Minnesota in the United States. And uh, just for anyone who's listening in the UK, sort of geographically. So we're, we're right in the center of the United States and in the middle and in the north. So um, okay just uh go to go to the in between the uh oh god yeah center of the continent at the north that's the easiest okay it. is it cold where you are <laughs> it is right now yeah um it's in a zero around zero degrees uh fahrenheit and i think what would that be um like minus 10 celsius something like that minus five oh celsius god. i don't know yeah <laughs> i'm complaining it's cold here and it's like five degrees so <laughs> um so why don't we kick off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background, your training, and how you came to be involved in kind of interactive site-specific um, performance and theatre? Sure, yeah. Um, so I am a theatre artist. Um, I got my training at a variety of community colleges and uh, state schools here in Minnesota. Um, uh, I first attended a performance-based high school uh, called Perpich uh, Center for the Arts, um, where I studied theater and a variety of different kind of interdisciplinary performance within theater. Um, mm -hmm. And then um, my focus in college was on, uh, I got a major in theater performance and directing and a minor in modern dance, actually. Um, but I ended up really cutting my teeth as a playwright, writing plays during the Minnesota Fringe Festival and performing them with, um, uh, with my theater company, uh, initially directed by my spouse, Amy Romani, who is one of our company members, and then further um, produced by our uh, company member David Pisa and the three of us together in 2004 formed Walking Shadow Theater Company, which we've been steadily making art together for the last 18 years. Um, so I, I consider myself mostly a writer and director now. Um, uh -huh. 
And I've always kind of had a penchant for immersive site-specific kinds of work. Um, I would say that because of my dance background, my interest really was in ensemble-based work for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of overlap between ensemble-based work and site-specific work, of course. Yes. And, um, and so I, I was really interested in exploring this, but never really prioritized it within my own company until um, 2006 was our first immersive show. And um, what it was, was actually our other company member, David Pisa, is a very experienced puzzle creator. So he created a lot of large scale um, interactive treasure quests that he would do either throughout the city or backstage at various shows during long runs in order to keep people entertained. Um, mm -hmm. he, he and my spouse worked and met at the Children's Theater Company here in Minneapolis, and they were both on the technical crew um, running the show backstage or working in the spot booth. And so um, one day Amy said to David, um, why don't we look at doing one of your puzzle treasure hunts as a theater experience? Uh, what would that be like? Um, and we at the time had a, um, we had access to a condo space that was in development still in Minneapolis. So it was finished, but not furnished. And um, the this was owned by one of mm -hmm. our board members and she was gracious enough to just let us use that space so we created a show um for that space that involved the audience move an audience of up to i think it was up to 18 it was built for 12 but we ex we kept expanding it mm -hmm. um people in a, a small i think it was about a thousand square foot condo that moved through different spaces in there called 1926 Pleasant. And it was inspired very loosely by um, the content or themes of um, Japanese horror films. So um, Dark Water and The Ring and other sorts of things. So uh -huh. we did a lot of dramaturgy researching this kind of tone and mm -hmm. then created a story that was rooted a little bit in the building's history. There had been a fire there in the 1920s and um, an ornithologist had lived in the building at one point. And so we weaved this story about a space where the audience was um, didn't know they were uh, birds solving puzzles to try to capture the spirits of the people who lived there and uncovering the story of this fire. And that's the story of um, uh, this couple who was trying to move into this place. And, mm -hmm. um, and so the audience would solve puzzles like uh, connecting words or uh, moving moving boxes around in order to create symbols and uh, letters in order to spell out what they needed to do next. Um, and then in between that would be, for lack of a better term, uh, cut scenes with the actors where the actors would do uh, a little scene that was uh, sort of rooted in their story. And then uh, influenced by the uh, audience who they could not see and mm -hmm. the changes in the environment that were created by that. And one of the characters goes a little crazy and then uh, locks herself in the back bedroom and the audience um, goes in there, follows her, unchains her and uh, opens up cages of, bird, uh, cages of um, bird eggs, smashes them, find letters inside, opens them, spells out a message together, takes uh -huh. final actions and then leaves mm -hmm. the space. Um, and this was all done in about an hour. And we did two shows a day, uh, sometimes three over the course of the Fringe, did 30 performances in a week. And then um, uh, it was a really successful show, very popular. Um, and we learned a lot about doing immersive theater, but we 
that was 2006. And we didn't really do another show of that style until 2011 when we did a show called Saboteur, um, which was spy themed where the audience played super spies trying to, and again, two actors uh, deal with a couple of super spies in the theme of um, uh, either spy versus spy or Mr. and Mrs. Smith about a couple who has relationship problems that they're trying to uh, learn each other's secrets. And, mm-hmm. um, and so the audience would solve <laughs> laser mazes, again, more box puzzles. They would ransack an office. They would find secret messages. They would translate code. They would mm-hmm. do a giant tilt maze. Um, so we learned, we learned a lot about the nature of immersive shows. And a big part of that was moving audiences through the space, how much interaction they can have with the actors, how we can create a safety around the audience's interaction with the actors, how the audience shouldn't need to play characters in order to feel like they can engage with the show. Um, they shouldn't need to feel like they need to do improvisation. And, um, mm-hmm. and so we, we built a lot around this notion of trying to keep the audience and the performers safe while they engage in these shows. Um, and then the, the most recent physical one we did was actually a build-out space um, of, a, of a warehouse that's about six rooms big, um, fully built-out, immersive secret society that the, of magic users that the audience joins um, and is initiated into. There's a seance. They learn that the leader of this organization died, and they um, then try to find ways to bring this leader back in various ways. Um, and it's, uh, it's actually a morality play. It actually has a lot to do with, um, uh, the Me Too movement and who has the right to have power and the, mm-hmm. the values of that, but it's all couched in this sort of magical secret society metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. and we're hoping to bring that back when the pandemic is over. Um, and that show is called Cabal. And then we did Reboot, which is our first digital version of this, which kind of implements all of those same techniques, but does it over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Oh. I I went to um, a lot of different types of performances over Zoom and Reboot was actually, I thought the most successful in making me engaged in a kind of, even though I wasn't kind of there, but in a tactile way because of the way you grounded it in a real world space mm-hmm. and that hybrid connection, although I couldn't be in that space, with the performers who were in that space, I thought was hugely successful and um, made me really hanker actually for getting getting back into spaces and rifling through drawers and doing those things for myself. Yeah. But not, not in a way that made me kind of sad. It, it kind of reminded me of the things that I love about going into kind of gamified and, and interactive and immersive spaces. So I, I really enjoyed Reboot. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed as well the kind of ethical dimension to that work and some of those big questions that were posed, but again, not posed in that sort of serious highbrow way, but were woven into the structure of the narrative and brought us mm-hmm. round to making in reality quite significant ethical decisions, but in a way that was that felt very natural and very part of, of that world that you had constructed. And so I thought you balanced the morality and the ethics of that in a, in a, in a fun way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. And I would say that, um, the morality and ethics 
are actually woven into our theater company's mission. The mission of Walking Shadow is to explore the heights and depths of human capacity and look mm -hmm. at difficult ethical questions wrapped into the shows that we do. And so those, those sorts of issues were always part of what we wanted these works to be. And we didn't really get to explore a good synthesis of that until Cabal. And then with Reboot, um, it was, I think, really essential that given the situation in Minneapolis in 2020, that we were asking those questions mm -hmm. about what does it mean? Who has rights? What is the nature of rights? What is the nature of life? Um, how do we get to, as a community, decide who has that and who doesn't? Mm -hmm. um, and what are the dimensions of making that decision? Yeah, and I, I thought that that was handled really beautifully because I've been to lots of work before the pandemic that is kind of ethically charged, but is kind of difficult to live through in a way that isn't, and I'm not saying everything should be fun, don't get me wrong. I think there <laughs> is a time when things should be difficult and challenging and hard to live through. Um, but I think it's, it is difficult to find that balance, isn't it? If, especially if you're dealing with something which is, is hard or challenging, how do you even get people through the door? And so I think the way that you locate those within those sort of narratives that aren't necessarily real world, but sit sort of in a more fantastical space, mm -hmm. I think is a really good way of introducing those and of taking people through those, but in a way that is is also, and I wouldn't say fun, but entertaining as well. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think, you know, we, we worked really, we worked for a long time um, alongside director, or uh, writer Duck Washington's um, script. And um, this was the first time he'd ever worked on an immersive work like this. And it was the first time we'd ever worked with an outside writer. And so there was mm -hmm. a lot of back and forth about what do we want this to be? What are we exploring? And he's the one who really came to us with the like AI approach and the look at what that is mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and how, to, how to approach those questions in a very sensitive, thoughtful way. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, you know, we had, we showed him our way through Cabal and the way that Cabal dealt with ethical metaphors within the context of its work. Yeah. And so um, we basically said, this is what we're looking for is how do we create ethical metaphors within what we're doing? And he's mm -hmm. the one who kind of brought that to it. And the other thing we were really keen on is how do we make something that's rooted in real history? Even if it's not, even if it's fantastical, how do we make something that feels like it's of our community, which is why it's set in Minneapolis, which is why it's rooted yeah. in the history of technology in Minneapolis and um, and sort of the, the back and forth of um, STEM and race relations within STEM. Well, it's, well. it's in some ways, isn't it? It's that alternative reality that's just slightly fictional enough mm -hmm. to generate that liminality where play and possibilities of behaving or responding in ways that you wouldn't necessarily within your usual context yeah possible by doing that but, but still keeping that connection to the real world and to those communities and to those sites and those spaces where those things are coming out of but in a way that people can be released from some of them in order to 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 find transformation I think yeah well, and it, it, it was nice because it helped inform the production design. It made it possible for us to create props and interactive pieces. Um, there's quite a lot of, for those who haven't seen it, there's quite a lot of engagement with online materials. So various websites or digital mm -hmm. documents that are mm -hmm. um, 
created that fill the world uh, with a both a sense of the backstory of the characters and also have puzzles embedded in them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that sort of real world anchor is what makes those feel so lived in and interesting and mm -hmm. personal. You know, like and, you um, really feel like you're digging through these characters' lives. You do. The only place I came unstuck was with dates. Mm. Um, some of some of I won't say too much because obviously you are rebooting reboot, and I don't want mm -hmm. to spoil any puzzles. Thank you. But if you are um, from Europe and you participate, um, oh, please remember sure. dates are written the, the other way round. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Uh, we really did build a very American show. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's because everyone else there as well was American except for me. And um, so I was translating and reading some of those clues incorrectly because I had got the dates. That makes the wrong sense. Way around. That makes sense. <laughs> I did realize halfway through and I was like, oh, of course. Oh, I'm completely misreading that because I'm, I've got the dates the wrong way around. <laughs> That's, I mean, in, in so many ways, the British way makes so much more sense, but we live here, so we're stuck with it. And it's what you know, isn't it? That's the thing. These things are so embedded in your consciousness mm -hmm. of kind of how you've grown up learning those things. So it wasn't until someone else was mentioning it and I was like, what are they talking about? It doesn't say that. And I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> I was like, I'm wrong here. <laughs> That's really funny. But yeah, no, you raise a really great point. <laughs> how have, have you found with being sort of in the digital realm, how have you found audience engagement? Have you found it's kind of your usual audience coming online or have you been able to engage with new and different audiences because of, of doing things through Zoom? I mean, it's really a mix of both of those things. It's actually... I think it's actually three audiences that we're getting. We're getting our regular in-person audience, or at least some portion of them, mm -hmm. coming to the online experience. Although a, a number of them aren't interested in making that shift to digital, and I guess I don't blame them. Yeah. Um, and we've al always found that our that our um, escape room crossover shows have a slightly different audience than our normal sit in a seat theater shows do. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. Um, the other is uh, people who have been fans of the company for a long time, um, but have moved away, now have a way that they can engage with the shows again. And yeah. so that's been another audience that we've cultivated. Mm -hmm. And then I would say that the third crowd is sort of a national or international escape room immersive theater audience who is just mm -hmm. interested in doing something unique and fun that they don't otherwise get to. Mm -hmm. And when you were making on-site work before the pandemic, um, did you find that your audiences were sort of traditional audiences or were they a slightly different audience to what you'd get, like you said, to sit down and see? Uh, uh, we definitely, so we, um, because of David's other, uh, because of David's history of building puzzles, he has a really strong relationship with the escape room community locally. Mm -hmm. and has helped design several of those and been connected to that community for a number of years now. And, um, and so I, I would say that they've actually been, besides traditional theater audiences, they've sort of been the backbone of our audience locally. Mm -hmm. um, and we've we found that we've needed to market more towards that audience than traditional theater audiences, mm -hmm. um, just because they're far more um, open to the nature of that sort of work. Yeah. Um, but it's still a journey for them because, you know, they're not being turned loose on a space to just tear it apart and 
discover what they can. Yeah. They have actors there who are curating that experience for them, telling them which problems they're solving, what to focus on, um, scenes that are happening, encouraging mm. them not to get ahead, uh, and really, really keeping <laughs> them from from winning the show. You know. Yes. So, um, so I, I would say it's been kind of a journey of different audiences, and um, mm-hmm. but the people who came to our show, um, Cabal, with that mindset. Uh, I mean, we would have people travel from across the country to come do the show, or or do it while they were in town for something mm-hmm. else because they like doing escape rooms or they like doing immersive theater. Um, And that was really the audience we were trying to cultivate, but it's, it's hard um, to sort of figure out how to redirect that. Um, We're not used to as an organization having long run shows. We're used to having shows that have a three or four week window and focusing a big push on getting audience and, um, and this sort of long tail of building audience over time is a, still kind of a learning process for us. Well, it's interesting, actually, there's a lot of synergies with what you're saying to what happens here or what's been happening here in the UK. So for us, the immersive scene is extraordinarily London centric. There's very mm-hmm. little kind of outside of that. Um, escape rooms are a little bit different. Every major city has kind of escape rooms but not really kind of immersive or interactive theatre. Yep. It's it's pretty much all London, but like you were saying, you know, you've got to access that condo for a period of time through through various serendipitous yep, yep. Uh, sort of circumstances, which is, is the same as when Punch Drunk started. And there's that similar pop-up kind of vibe as well in terms of runs. So right. It can be, if you don't live in London, it's difficult because a show will be there. And actually your runs are long in comparison to here. Here a show will be there for two days and then gone. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Or four days and gone, maybe a week at the most, perhaps Mm -hmm. two. And if it goes really well, maybe a month. Sure. (laughs) But it's it's down to that precarity of the pop-up spaces. And early on, it was was much easier because um, property developers weren't savvy. To the well, amount of money that could be made. We've uh, run into that for sure. Um, yes, and now and that's a, starting to happen. <laughs> and a, a big part of that, you know, in 2006, there was a lot of development here and it was fairly easy for us to find space. By 2011, um, the the development boom was sort of mid-stride and, um, and spaces were becoming increasingly rare and much more, much more mm-hmm. desirable. Even, even sort of less good spaces had been turned into brew pubs and escape rooms and condos and all sorts of other functions um and uh finding even just finding a person or a a organization that would rent to us for a small window was difficult Mm -hmm. um because people wanted a multi a multi-year lease and so the big the big push of our our rentals for cabal which we opened in 2019 was to um, to sign a multi-year lease with an organization, and that was a big gamble for our company. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and actually, part of the reason that we created Reboot was because we were already paying for this space, so building another space into it. Um, so Reboot is actually built into our parlor space for uh, Cabal, and it's our way kind of of paying our rent for that space while the pandemic is going on. Yes. <laughs> And so do you have access to that space then at the moment? And when when do you think you'll be able 
to sort of get back in there and open it up? Well, that's a great question. You know, the, the thing about Cabal that's difficult is that it's it's built into a series of tiny rooms. So six foot distance isn't really possible. Masking is possible, but even some of the puzzles involve the actor or the audience members holding hands, being in close proximity with each other, mm -hmm. um, putting hands on the same things, uh, sharing air. And, yeah. uh, and it's an old space, so it's not properly HVAC'd in the way that we would like it to be if we were going to be going to um, actors' equity standards of health and safety. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of factors going into how do we make this show feel, feel safe for the audience to do and safe for the actors who may be doing it, you know, 10 times a week, um, yeah. getting intermingled with close audience and uh, especially at this highly contagious variant, you know, we don't, we don't know. So <laughs> we've been, we've been really playing it by ear. We do have a hope that we will be opening Cabal back up in the spring of this year, but we just don't know. And yeah. um, living in a space of uncertainty has been just part of this experience overall. Yeah. And I, I think even though we have um, a lot of public funding and public sector funding and infrastructure and support in that ways, immersive has never really been a part of that and yeah. um we've never really had a seat at that table or been trusted in that way so the precarity that has always been there has just been exacerbated and i know here it's been on off on off so they kind of can open up for two weeks then they shut down again then they're opening up and then then and so this yeah uncertainty but also um, a desire to try and hold on to some of those spaces that people have managed to secure. <laughs> yes. But in a way that won't bankrupt them. <laughs> right, right. And this is this is why the pivot to digital felt really, really urgent for us. Yeah. You know, and we were, we were very early on in the process. Um, you know, uh, as soon as theaters closed down here and everyone was in isolation uh, in the first lockdown, um, we started doing digital performances of a one-person version of Beowulf that I do and just did them over Facebook Live and yeah. just did six performances live. And um, and it was really, it was extremely well attended. Um, and then we, we started doing deep delves into who's doing digital theater that we find really enriching, really meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big lessons that I sort of took away from that shift was... Um, the company that most impressed me uh, that I had seen their work was um, Auckland Theatre Company out of New Zealand was doing um, live, uh, well, I don't know if they were live, but they were over Zoom performances of Chekhov, um, The Seagull. I, yes. And I one of the things it. that was so powerful about that show was the fact that instead of just being over people's living room as a background or uh, a green screen or a digital background, people were in really deep, interesting, immersive spaces. So you have a conversation with one person who's in her, her living room and another person who's in an airplane hangar. And they're talking about, are we gonna take the plane? When are we gonna leave? Can we get out of quarantine? You know, like all these kind of interesting questions. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was fascinating about that within the context of Chekhov specifically, is that Chekhov was all about, you know, someone opens a door, stumbles into an awkward conversation, leaves again. And Zoom had that energy <laughs> yes. in a really palpable way. Yes. And so both of those things I sort of took from seeing that show and tried to find ways to create that energy in Reboot. Mm -hmm. And so that's why having a really 
really engaged real environment felt important. Um, yeah. And that's why this feeling of anyone can leave a meeting or come back into a meeting at any time was really important. Um, one of the things that we did that's really most impressive, I think, for me, um, or at least took the most work, um, was that the playwright had written in a digital helper character. And so we needed to figure out how to create her presence in a way that felt continual and engaging mm -hmm. and interactive without feeling static all the time. Yes. And, um, and so that's a thing that we spent kind of a lot of energy trying to figure out how do we make a digital character in Zoom? How do we create that? How do we utilize that as, um, as a stage manager so that the, that person can watch the meeting going on and monitor mm -hmm. progress and know what needs to be done? So, um, and that's so, the thing that I feel pretty impressed with. Our yeah, language. and I, I think that was really successful. And like I said, I went to a lot of things. And interestingly, Chekhov was done a lot. I saw I, a I, lot. I feel like I feel like Chekhov very much spoke to the moment in 2020. Yes. <laughs> that kind of ennui that is Yeah, a, a wanting, of, a deep wanting. Yes, and, and, and wanting to be somewhere else. <laughs> mm -hmm. We could go to Moscow. Oh God, I wish we could go to Moscow. I wish we could go to Moscow, yeah. <laughs> so I think Chekhov really uh, sort of exploded back into the public consciousness, certainly in the theatre landscape anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one of the big challenges of this form is that one of those central facets is always absent from your process. So audience is always yeah. Absent when you make the work. And so I wanted yep. to ask you, how do you sort of manage that, facilitate that when you're making a work? How do you kind of work around building them in? Yeah. So we actually started playtesting the show probably a full two months before we opened. Um, and so uh, about half of our, after the initial development phase, and the initial development phase was many months long, and we brought in the actors I think we worked with the actors for a total of about five months before we opened, mm -hmm. um, which was quite a long process for us, unexpectedly yeah. long, really. And there were there were breaks in that. The actors were, instead of being paid um, a set stipend, we paid them hourly. So we knew that if we needed to take a week or two off in order to do something, or if, um, you know, we had a number of, we had a number of, um, types of civil unrest that happened during that time that we needed to give people time off for mental health or, or actual health, because um, we never knew if someone was gonna have a COVID scare. Um, and the, the show was really built so that the actors never encounter each other physically. They're in two different spaces. They are in the same physical building together, but they have separate entrances. They don't need to interact if they don't need to. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of safety built into that, but but the time and duration that we had was actually kind of a luxury of the pandemic because it meant that we had a lot of time off to sort of go in, tweak, fix things. Um, so it's an iterative process with this where we would say, here's a puzzle. Um, here's the text we think surrounds that puzzle. Here's an audience testing it out. And we find that for some reason, this audience doesn't succeed at the puzzle. So we need to retool the puzzle. And that means we need to retool the text. And that means we need to re-rehearse the scene mm -hmm. and then we do it again. Um, and so I would say that that process, that iterative process was, was about two months long. And so is that a central part of how you do that? Then is that sort of beta testing, trying bits out, 
that was on sort of audience. Yeah, that was definitely true of both Cabal and Reboot. Um, and uh, and a big part of that in Reboot specifically was was about just getting different people to have different experiences. And as much about getting the actors used to sort of digitally managing the audience's experience. And mm -hmm. when do we need to give a hint? When do we need to give a clue? When do we need to ask them to look deeper at something or read something aloud? Or could you share that with the group? Or how did you get that answer? Mm -hmm. Like all those kinds of questions. Um, it was a as much a training process for the actors in terms of guiding that. Um, so that the audience never feels truly lost, truly cut free. They always feel like they're being taken care of just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that, that that process was as much about making the, the puzzles work and making the text really sing as it was about giving the actors the confidence they need to guide the audience through those processes. So early on when we brought audience in, <clears throat> we hadn't really told the actors how to clue them because we didn't really know. Mm -hmm. And so some of those initial shows would take three hours to get through uh, because we'd just mm -hmm. let the audience go down whatever rabbit holes of discovery they wanted. Uh -huh. And it could be uh, quite tedious, I think, for everyone involved. <laughs> That's not true anymore. Now the show runs pretty consistently about uh, an hour 45. Uh -huh. There's always a little bit of elasticity that, that, that yeah. inevitably isn't there because you're dealing with technical glitches and, and sometimes groups don't want to talk and sometimes they do <laughs> and sometimes you have strong personalities um i would say mm -hmm. the big the big development for us over zoom compared to our previous work has been a lot greater feeling of letting the audience have open-ended conversations with the performers mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't something we had previously done because it's so much harder to control for that when you're in an actual physical space. And there's so much more risk. Um, but online, it's pretty easy to call on other people to quiet them down to know that the audience can only see what you're pointing at. You know, they won't, yeah. they won't see if you're blocking with your body, half the room, <laughs> they are not going to see it. No, so they're, they're never, you're never going to get a thing where they're rushing ahead of you. No, and, and it becomes a different sort of management, doesn't it? Because sometimes uh, in physical space, there's a little bit of herding. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> and, and wrangling. <laughs> and, and we do that too in the digital space, but it's different, you mm -hmm. know? It is, it is much more controlled by where the angle of the camera is pointing mm -hmm. or even just the abruptness of dealing with digital characters means that these characters can sometimes say, I'm gonna change the conversation now and just turn, <laughs> pivot the entire conversation at a moment's notice. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wanted to sort of find out a little bit about the context of where you are. So like I said here, um, everything is very London centric. If mm -hmm. you want to go to immersive stuff, you have to sort of get to London. It's also really secretive. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to kind of be in the know and in the community to kind of access that kind of work, to even know where to begin to look for it. And even then when it's marketed, it's not really marketed. Right. There's kind of little teaser things and that's about as much as you'll get. And I wondered what, what the kind of scene is like there and where you're kind of, where you feel you're located within that. Sure, I mean, I, I, the US experience is very New York centric, but also very, the immersive experience also is very LA centric. There's quite a lot of it in California too. 
it um, seems to me, and I, sorry. Um, oh, please. I think New York seems, looking from a distance anyway, very theatrical based, and LA seems, seems very much about the massive entertainment. Yes, so. I would agree with that. I haven't had the experience of doing any immersive work in Los Angeles. Um, but one of our designers for Cabal came from that world, and it does certainly seem to be much more the case. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it has a, a really strong connection with IP. Well, mm -hmm. certainly things that are being transmitted beyond LA and kind of globally. Yeah, well, and I, I would argue that IP LA's, record. from what I know, LA's scene really grew much more out of ARGs, and New York's scene really much more grew from ensemble and immersive, like ensemble theater. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, they're just different schools of thought in terms of what what makes something. Yeah, I agree. And it does seem very, I, I've seen a few articles and a few bits and bobs of things that are happening elsewhere, but they tend to be very located in enrichment coming out of the museum sector or the memory institution sure, sector. Sure, and we've and definitely had some overlap with museums here. I mean, I've developed immersive games for the Minnesota Historical Society that toured mm -hmm. around. Um, David has worked with um, a handful of different museums, including the Science Museum of Minnesota on creating immersive in, in environments. Um, I would say museums are actually the ones, if not driving the innovation, they're certainly driving the funding for a lot of these programs. Oh yes, and even Punch Drunk, their model now relies enormously on what they call enrichment work, which is, which is exactly that working um, sort of in the third sector and with with museums and schools and in kind of education because that's a much more solid and constant stream of revenue than kind yeah. of theater yeah. and, and much less expensive to get up and running because rather mm -hmm. than having to kit out four-story thousands and thousands of feet of warehouse you already have something that that's interesting and engaging and a site that is already set for you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would say within the context of the Twin Cities where I'm based, um, we don't really have the luxury of being secretive because we don't, uh, you know, our population here is I think around 3 million people, um, which is a, you know, it's a big city, but it doesn't have, um, it doesn't have the tourism or the population centrism that comes with um, a churning arts scene uh, that is commercial in nature. Yes. And, um, you know, we have a very vibrant arts scene that is a nonprofit in nature. And so people are used to um, going to shows, seeing theater, being part of communities, going to escape rooms, uh, going to lots of different types of um, in-person engagement. But we don't really, you know, we don't really have a secretive scene here. Um, because it, I don't think we have the, I feel like one, one of two things sort of needs to be true for a secretive scene to work. You either need a culture where exclusivity is something that is highly prized um, or, and, and paid for and therefore reimbursed for the artists, or you need a community where artists are willing to work for almost nothing and you can just do it for a short amount of time and have it be fun and then sort of move on to the next thing. Um, yeah. and, and some of that exists um, in short bursts here, but even that we're trying to advertise, we're trying to get people in seats. And one of the big things that we've been trying to do is make, because we're doing longer runs, 
we're trying to make these shows as sustainable as possible for the actors and the performers and the tech crew who can look at it as a reliable um, job, a reliable yeah. second, second job. Um, and, uh, and can plan their hours as, as shift workers. And we can look at their schedule and say, when are you available to do a show this week? And between their availability and what we think will sell, we'll plan a week of shows out and attempt to book them. Um, you know, with Cabal, we were doing, um, or we would release a block of bookings a month at a time, and it would just be based on who can cover what shifts, who wants to do it. And some weeks mm -hmm. we would just be dark because everyone was working on something else. We had yeah. two sets of actors who had learned, each learned the show. And so that gave them the flexibility for one group, one person to go off and do another performance, you know, mm -hmm. be, be involved in a different show for a month and then come back and do performances. So, so trying to make things that feel like they're sustainable for everyone involved is something that's a core value for us. Yeah. And uh, it's definitely something being looked at. I know that the work I'm doing at the moment in, in various forms with the makers in London, especially the smaller companies that aren't punch drunk or secret right, cinema. Right. Um, Cause there is lots of work outside of those things that is happening um, to find ways to be more sustainable and to find ways where we can start to consolidate and have things on for longer runs so that we can build grassroots audiences so that mm -hmm. we can build up that sustainability. And I think, part of what we'll have to give is that exclusivity and secrecy yeah that is at the heart of some of those things yeah and i i just don't feel like that we're such a we're such a grassroots culture here in minnesota i just don't feel mm. like that will play here yeah. like i don't I, I don't feel like there's anyone who is willing to drop 100 or 200 or 300 dollars on a ticket for a exclusive event it's just not the way the community is built. No, but here it's, it makes it, and because I teach it to students and they always say, what can I go and see? And it's mm. tough because I, I, I can't plan in advance because everything's done a year ahead in academia. So especially classes and all of those things are fixed down. There's no way I know what shows are going to be on a year in advance. Sure. And then, you know, sometimes if it's only the big, the big shows on, I'm like, it's 160 quid, which. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, when they're built, students, when they're built for tourist prices, that. you know, it's set, set at a West End or Broadway scale. Yeah. Then it becomes really hard for people to get access to that work. Yeah. And so I, I think at the moment it has real issues in terms of accessibility and consolidation of itself as something long term. Um, so I'm working with lots of different people to try to, Try to do some things about that. Good. So how do you how do you do your marketing? Do you rely on social media or is it much more sort of in community based marketing? I mean, I, I would I would say initially it was very in community. Um, although because of our very, very long playtesting structure, we ended up getting through quite a lot of that community in our in our preview performances. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, I would say it's it's a mix of traditional marketing, which for us is mostly, um, you know, email and web and Facebook um, and uh, sort of extended social media ads, um, trying to get new people. And then really, you know, so our, our show is built for four to 10 audience members at a time. You know, that's, that's at most for us a 10 performance week, which is quite a lot, um, is, is at most 100 people 
you know, so word of mouth is actually the most powerful tool we have. Yes. And just getting people to know that it's happening and that it's mm -hmm. a thing they want to do. Yes. Um, but at the same time, I think we run into specific marketing challenges because we, um, while we're very proud of the work, we, because it's escape room based in terms of its nature, we don't want to reveal too much about the story, the plots, yes. the characters, <laughs> the secrets. The uh -huh. So finding, finding imagery that we can use to promote the show, even telling who's in the show, um, revealing what the twists of the plot are, we can't really do a lot of no. that. So we really have to rely on um, press quotes and uh, mm -hmm. trying to get people excited about the work based on the theory of it or what other people have said about it. Yeah. So reviews have mattered a lot, but um, we have found that it's been difficult to get sort of traditional print media to take an interest in this form of theater. Yes. Um, we've gotten a bit, but it is, um, you know, just as, just as actual theater has been suffering, the journalism of theater has also been suffering and yeah. Um, you know, there was a there was a big draw for online work at the very beginning of the pandemic, but yes. I think that that energy has mostly dried up. Um, yeah. So, I think the more we went back to work, but through this medium, I I because I wanted to do I did so much stuff early on in the mm -hmm. original lockdowns online, but as soon as I had to start get back to teaching on it, was having three four hour meetings. On it, I found yeah. that I didn't then want to sit on it for another hour or so in the evening. Right. When I'd been on it all day, which, and I felt guilty about that too, because I was kind of like, I want to do cultural things and I want to engage in theatre and those things, but I also don't think I can, I can stand another hour in Zoom yeah. <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah, I really do get that. <clears throat> and I think we suffered a little from this because of our long development period. We weren't expecting the show to take quite as long to open as it did. We were really mm -hmm. hoping to open. Our initial run opened in June, July of 2021. And we were really hoping that it would open in February or March of 2021. Mm -hmm. But by the time it did open, it was the height of summer, vaccines were out, everyone was just sort of excited to not be yeah. looking at their screens anymore. Um, I, I can't say that I'm glad that the pandemic is surging again, but there is something about having something that we can offer the world right now yes. at a time when it's winter in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. And yes, for sure. <laughs> we're trying to, uh, uh, everyone's trying to socially distance again and mm -hmm. kind of create space. Um, it's nice to have something that people can do together. And, you know, one of the things that's special, I think, about this show, unlike, say, The Work of Punch Drunk or many other immersive shows, is that it's really actually about seeing your fellow audience, talking to your fellow audience, making decisions and discoveries with other people that mm -hmm. being on camera with people is a big part of it, that it's, that it's an effort to build community. Yes. And I, th I think that's something that's been really positive in a lot of online work that I've been to is, is that notion of recognizing and building community again, mm -hmm. in a way that I think, especially because a lot of the, well, especially in London, I, I, there's a place for it. So don't get me wrong. I'm always criticizing and I feel really bad. <laughs> because <laughs> I know lots of them really well. But there is a hedonistic um, 
kind of element to a lot of the big shows that went in London. You know, they're expensive. They're about booze. They're about dressing up. And they're about you getting your money's worth out of that experience. And so actually sometimes the way audience treat other audience and performers is encouraged in a way that is not necessarily conducive to anything near a community. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a, a little bit, I, I love that kind of notion of the hedonism of those shows. Mm-hmm. But a little bit, it reminds me of, um, you know, there was there were these gangs in the 1720s in London that would um, don masks of masked gentlemen who would go about doing crimes, not to achieve any goal, not out of anything other than an exercise of power. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. beat people up and steal things, and they were these were gentlemen. They didn't need the money; they just mm-hmm. wanted to wanted to go about it. And I think that question about um, how we engage in immersive theater as audience members is, um, is I think a really important one. And um, I love the idea of doing masked theater and, and the anonymity of that. But um, again, my company member, David was, was very against the idea. Um, and, and I think I, I've come on board with where he's coming from with that because it does feel when you hide your own identity, there's a greater potential for being extractive in your approach to entertainment. Mm-hmm. That it's that it's not about building connection. It's about um, how do I how do I take from this experience as much as I can get. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think actually Zoom has facilitated is this really you can see yourself literally inside the work because I think when you're in those big things, they're dark. There's lights. You've got a mask, booze, and although you're there and your body's there and everything's very tactile, I think because you can't really see yourself, it does give you permissions to behave, I think in ways that you wouldn't normally, but not in a way that potentially builds community or does anything positive. And there is definitely a place for that. And don't get me wrong, there are times when absolutely mask, gin, and a bit of debauchery is exactly what one needs. But I'm, I mean, sounds like a great New Year's party. Indeed, <laughs> but it's very much a party and I think Actually, in Reboot and other work like um, Coney, I don't know if you know their work, they make very ethically engaged work and Lab Collective as well. When they've done this kind of work, I think Zoom, because you can see yourself aside other people, I think in some ways, actually, the format of it reminds you of your humanity and your connection and other people and their proximity to yeah. you. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I think for us, you know, especially as we were making this, um, one of the chief things we wanted to emphasize was connection. How do we create connection? How do we build connection? And that's why, um, you know, we don't want people to do the show with their camera off. It, it actually is quite difficult to do the show without a camera because so much of what's being done is decided by, um, you know, can you draw the thing? Can you show it on your screen? Can you share, can you mm-hmm. show yourself on the screen? Um, and, and I think, you know, that's a vulnerable thing for people um, yeah. to, to show their own home, to show their own self, um, mm-hmm. to show the distractions that are present in their life. Um, you know, we can tell when they're checked out, we can tell when they're into it. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that is a vulnerable space for them and the performers, but you know, in, in my first round of doing Beowulf on um, Facebook Live, one of the things that was hardest for me was just performing at the camera and not yeah. getting anything back from the camera. 
Um, and you really feel like you're in your own bubble. And that was just a world that we couldn't leave our performers in, mm -hmm. you know, for their sanity. Well, we I think us, us especially theater folk, there is something about the feedback from traditional theater all the way through to immersive theater about that feedback loop that yeah. you get that's live, you, you're breathing the same air, you're, you're in the same space. And there's something about the energy that passes between audience and performer that is very difficult to establish through this kind of digital mm -hmm. connection. And you're right, if, and I, I find the students are terrible for it. If it's <laughs> anything, if, if you're talking, even when I'm asking them to do practical <laughs> classes, they have their cameras off. Oh yeah. And I'm like, I can't offer you feedback. I can't see, I can't see what you're doing. So I can't help you in your development, but I think right. it's because there is that vulnerability, especially with first years. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm i actually back in school studying filmmaking right now. Ah, well, hopefully um, you're not one who sits with your camera off because it's so disconcerting. <laughs> well, trying not to, <laughs> you know, but, but after a year of doing almost entirely digital work, um, archival work, reboot, um, performing for the camera, you know, it just felt like a very natural outgrowth of the skills I was already building Yeah. to go back and go, go do that. But I've seen quite a few first years who are, who are struggling with that, you know? Um, yeah. And we're trying so hard to, I mean, we're, we're very, we're back in person. So they're kind of having that sort of connection mm -hmm. and support again, but at the height of the pandemic, when I was giving kind of trying to do practical classes, but to a, a whole screen full of just black blank spaces with names on oh I'm like are you there I'm getting nothing back and yeah. as, a, as an educator the energy that takes because you're just pushing as much of your energy and uh, as you and as you can at the screen to them mm -hmm. but you have <laughs> no yeah, idea you don't get any of that you don't get you. any of the back and forth I have found I have found that for teaching uh, writing, it actually works out kind of well because then mm. everyone can follow along on the same document at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you can make changes to a Google Doc and people can see it as it happens. There's some nice, no, there's some nice some... benefit to writing classes in this medium. But I agree, and even with some of the things that we do, but in terms of ensemble and oh yeah, uh, it's physical theater training. <laughs> Well, yeah, I can't even imagine doing, you know, like I said, I have a minor in modern dance. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. I had to do Laban online. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I had to do Laban, um, viewpoints. Right? How do you flock? There's no way to flock on camera. No, well, we tried. We, we, we did a few things by sort of experimenting and trying to manipulate where people are on the screen and seeing if we could kind of engage mm. it. But it's really tough. It's really tough. It's really tough. I do think there was something, you know, studying studying as I was this last year, the history of early modern cinema, uh, of cinema at all. Of um, you know, when we when we study the history of theater, I think that feels extremely removed from us as modern mm -hmm. practitioners. You know, it's still it's still there. It's still present. But um, we're studying a history that's like two thousand five hundred years old or more. Mm -hmm. And, um, and studying the history of cinema was interesting because that history is only 150 years old tops. Mm. And, um, and just to have that scope shrunk so much was fascinating. And it reminded me a lot of the first year of digital theater because the thing that we sort of have lost sight of, I think maybe within our own 
um, within our own medium of live performance is that um, all of these things that we're doing were innovated at one point. Yeah. And um, the thing that I think is so interesting about digital theater is it put us back in a space of innovating. And we mm -hmm. were just throwing things at the screen and seeing what happened yeah. and trying different stuff. Maybe this works, maybe this works, maybe this works. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the nature of it was that most of those things mm -hmm. were not going to work. Um, but if you found something that was actually palpable and powerful, it mm -hmm. really, really resonated. Mm -hmm. So um, that I, was kind I, of interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're right. Just thinking it's, we have such a weight of discipline upon us. Like you mm -hmm. said, there's thousands of years of, of giants that came before us. And I think you're right. I think this troubled all of the things the assumptions, all of those disciplinary mm. sort of givens that sit beneath the practice of live theatre. And it's, it's been really interesting to see how, how different creators and different companies have, have responded to that disruption and to finding different ways of operating, in some ways slightly uncoupled from our, our kind of our heavy weight. <laughs> Well, you know, just, just Aristotle. Such a, right. Well, and, and just as such a small thing as, you know, there was this mentality before the pandemic that everything live should be live. And I think there's something really valuable to that. But then as soon as the pandemic happened, everyone was cursing the fact that they never created good recordings. Yes. And suddenly just having a decent recording of a past work was... Uh, an amazing thing. It was it was a piece of gold that larger the national, companies could utilize. Went, the National Theatre Live, we love you. You're like the you yeah. keep us going. Yeah, it became this beautiful <laughs> model, you know. And Andrew Lloyd Webber's releasing his back catalog, and you know, mm -hmm. all sorts of these weird things that never had been part of the dialogue before. Mm -hmm. You know, we were lucky as an organization that I had because I'd been exploring filmmaking, I had just created good archives, but never with an intention of what to do with them. And mm -hmm. so when the pandemic hit, we could just ask all of the performers and creative staff who had worked on those, do we have your permission to do this? <laughs> yes. Because we didn't of course have agreements in place because that was never part of the, part of the no. context in which they were created. But everyone was really gracious about it and they were happy to, to let us utilize that work, so. Mm -hmm. You know, my last winter was just editing together archival footage and putting it out <laughs> onto the world. Um, but it, it's just that now went from something that uh, was almost unthinkable three years ago, mm -hmm. something that people are now thinking about, well, now we have this digital audience who likes our work, who yeah. lives in a far off place from us, yes. who maybe wants to be able to see it. How do we build, how do we build digital access for those mm -hmm dealing with distance or disability to be able mm -hmm. to engage with our work. Okay, well, that, that's a game changer that even yeah. just a few years ago, people would have found uh, abhorrent as a notion. Well, it opens up a different space. It becomes, it, like you said, it becomes accessible. And mm -hmm. I think the national was starting to do work in that area mm -hmm. by opening up and by putting their work into cinemas so that people yeah. could yeah. access it in that way. But I think you're right. I think there was a real snooty... Well, we're live. Yes, sneering attitude to anything because it's, it was other, which in some ways it is other, but there is a value in it. And I think that's what this has shown is that there is, there is huge value. And actually it does, 
maybe we need to think about the ways in which we start. And this is something I talked about in all of my episodes, and I'm obsessed with documentation. Oh, yeah. And people just don't document their work in serious or significant ways before this happens. That has always been baffling to me. We've always been yeah. a company that prioritizes a good documentation. Um, it's so difficult of life. Sometimes without knowing why. <laughs> Well, because I come from a, um, well, I, I came in a bit at first, but once I did my PhD and did a practice as research one, documentation was everything and became central in terms of evidence. Oh, and so of course. Sure. I had to find ways of meaningfully capturing live performance and trying to find ways of expressing live performance once it had vanished in the way well, that and it, I, it does. <laughs> I, will, I will say that trying to capture our immersive work has always been the hardest. That is, I've... I've spoken to a lot of companies over the years now and I've been trying to capture my own work and I have not found anyone yet who has found a way to capture the action. There's lots of beautiful photos mm-hmm. of immersive work, mm-hmm. but nothing really that can kind of put you inside inside it. Yeah, we, we did a digital shoulder cam recording of Cabal where mm-hmm. we followed the actors and the action around. And I um, I walked, uh, I wasn't in the room with the cinematographer, but I did a full walkthrough of the show with the cinematographer telling them, stand here for this moment, catch it from this angle, catch it from this angle, mm-hmm. be present for this, circle this, you'll wanna get this person's reaction and this person's. So, so, but that felt more like directing a film than it did feel like capturing the actual moment of the work. Yeah. Um, but even and- that, that is what, that doesn't exist yet in any significant way. Well, and I think it was possible, it was specifically possible with Cabal because Cabal follows a linear path. Mm. And I think for a show like, you know, Sleep No More, or (laughs) there'd be no way, there'd be no way to capture the many, many things that are going on all at the same time. Well, some companies I know have tried with um, the little tiny action cams. Oh, sure putting those on audience well obviously their friends test audiences mm-hmm. as they kind of go through the experience but what you get afterwards isn't anything that's watchable it makes you feel sick oh yeah it's very it's very <laughs> nauseating they're so wide angle um yeah it's so bad um and so i think more work and more thinking needs to be done because i firstly as an academic have concerns in terms of cu- cultural custodianship and mm-hmm. I know that if work isn't captured in meaningful ways, it disappears from cultural memory. That's true. And so I don't want that to happen. Um, So I think documentation, especially of all this secrecy and elusivity and all of these things that make it invisible um, need to be addressed in order to try to draw some of that out. Um, But also finding ways to do it that will capture the essence of of what they are. In mm-hmm. some ways, and I think there's a lot of work to be done. I'm, I've been thinking about it for probably about 15 years, and I have not come up with a good solution yet. But I think I'm going to be trying for a lot longer. <laughs> I mean, this is this is sort of the essential question that that has dogged theatre throughout all of time, really. You know, mm-hmm. I remember reading. Um, there's a series of really great books about restoration theatre um, that I remember reading, and one of them talks about the actor Penkethman. And how the journalists, like journalists of his day, talked extensively about the way he ate chicken on stage. Mm-hmm. But there's no sense of what that meant. 
No. We know that he did it. We know that it was important. We know the audiences <laughs> liked it, but was it was it vivacious? Was it disgusting? Was it uh, was it written into a moment? Was it what was the bit? We don't know. And mm -hmm. and so this the this question I have always sort of thought about is um, how did how did Penkethman eat chicken? Is the question of how do we <laughs> how do we record not just that it happened, but what the yes. essential the essential question of what it was is. Mm -hmm. And feeling- Very obscure because... reference for that, but- <laughs> No, no, absolutely, it's brilliant. And it's about feeling. And so I think it's something I spend a lot of my time thinking about is how do I, how do I capture how this feels mm -hmm. for the people who are doing it? Mm -hmm. Because it's not even just watching it, is it? And this is, the whole time we've been talking, I've been kind of capturing, cap thinking about the terminology that we're using oh, sure. and the different ways that we talk about things and we we still talk about seeing things mm. which is so mm -hmm. interesting because these are the very this work very specifically isn't seen in that way but right. it's still part of the vocabulary that we use but also earlier you use some um computer when you talked about cutscenes. Oh yes, yes, video game talk. Like, that's, yeah, that's totally from gaming. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, and that's my culture. That's that's where I what I grew up doing. Yeah, and I think immersive, immersive and interactive performance is very particular in that respect. That it's so interdisciplinary. I think there's a lot of different disciplines that come to bear. Yeah. On the way that it it manifests itself, but also the way we talk about about it too. Yeah. Well, and I, I think there's there's not quite a shared. And it's interesting because all the practitioners that I talk to use gaming terminology and use terminology from film as well, but mm -hmm. there's no sort of agreed, you know, like in, in traditional theatre, there are very specific agreed terminologies. If I oh, yes. say them, you would know exactly what I'm talking about straight away. Yeah, and music has that too. And visual yes. art and of has course, that physical as well. ensemble theatre has it, dance has it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But we're in the wild west of... <laughs> We are, we are. Of language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, so so here's a question for you, because I, I think that digital theater and immersive theater are different, but I think mm -hmm. that they overlap in the same sort of cultural space of being new and exploring the medium in ways that depend on audience interaction mm -hmm. in... Um, in much more palpable ways than say traditional proscenium theater would. And, yes. um, and so for me, I feel like they actually to large degree are the same genre, even if they mm -hmm. are fundamentally different in approach and medium. I agree. And I think one of the things that holds it together and the more and more I talk to different people and the more research that I do, I think it's because they're audience centric. And so they're part of that shift towards experiential and because that's so fundamental to them both, that the form becomes more like genre. So the difference mm -hmm. in form becomes more like the difference in genre in film. But what's yeah. at the heart of that is audience having experiences in one kind or another. Well, and this is why we feel like a lot more kinship with um, escape rooms, which have no performers whatsoever. Yeah. Because the way that our audience engages with space is through deep delves into the physical properties of the environment and, mm -hmm. um, and the narrative that they're given for characters. 
You know? But I would argue that the environment itself becomes the character, doesn't it? That oh, I do. I think so too. That yeah. Space Absolutely. <laughs> is a performer in a way. <laughs> I think that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, there's this feeling that that you're walking into something that is sacred. Yeah, is is alive. You know, and we we try to create mystery around it, and. And uh, one of the things we've always done with every one of our shows that we've done this way is we always want to create a moment where the audience leaves a space, comes back to it, and it's different. And that's a thing we do in Reboot, and it's a thing we've done in all of those other shows as well. And one of the things that that just suggests is this feeling of a larger world that exists outside the scope of what's happening mm -hmm. and a little bit of distrust about the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. um, and that's manifested in different ways, in this case, technology and other ways through magic and some mm -hmm. through ghosts and some through spies, you know, yeah. different things. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that we also do that we've really done is leaning into genre when we've created this work, mm -hmm. because it gives the audience something to latch onto that feels familiar. They can yes. say, oh, I might not know the rules of engagement on Zoom or in with this performer or in this show, but I know the rules of James Bond movies. I can go, yes. I can go in with that mindset and mm -hmm. I know the role I'm supposed to play within that context. I agree. And I think it's one of the central features across the, the whole spectrum from immersive, large-scale immersive theater to interactive one-on-one -on -one is that they, they are disruptive of the everyday but they always have something tangible that is recognizable, whether it be Alice in Wonderland, the novel. Yep, so you yep. know how, what, what that, we know Wonderland, we all know Wonderland. So you kind of know how to behave there. Or whether it's having tea at a nan's house in a one-on-one, -on -one, because mm -hmm. just at a table having tea, you kind of have a sense of behaviors and what your role is. Mm -hmm. And I think good immersive shows immersive interactive um, and digital shows get that right get that yeah that balance between uncertainty but enough recognizability to function and enter into that space well and I think I think most of those have that sort of baked into the conceit of the show and the marketing of the show mm -hmm. I'm reminded now of a show I went to that was on the 20th floor of a skyscraper um, that was between me and a call center employee in India in an office um, and how the, the call center was like a part of that, you know, mm -hmm. it was, it was marketed as this is what that show's about, uh -huh. you know, and I think, I think something about even, and that was just a two person, I mean, that was a one actor, one audience member show mm -hmm. and how, how simple that interaction was. It's all about um, making sure that I knew going into it what that interaction was going to be and setting my expectations accordingly. And yeah. I think that's that's actually kind of a rooted to questions of consent is making sure that the audience, because they're in a, put in a vulnerable space of needing to engage, they need to give, be given some rules of what that engagement and expectations around that engagement are going to be. Yeah, yeah. Because you always have to, because I'm, and you're probably the same, I am someone who will jump in. I will open things up, look in things, rifle through things. If someone says, follow me, uh, your life depends on it, I'll be like, yes, I will. But that is a very particular mindset and a very yeah. particular personality type. And you can't only cater for that. I'm, a, no, I'm no, foolish. Yeah. I will follow the white rabbit. I will follow the black cat. I will do all the things you're not supposed to because I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can't 
not everybody is and actually it's remembering that probably I'm the minority <laughs> in that foolhardy behavior but it's catering isn't it so that everyone feels that they can take the hand and follow yeah yeah in a way that isn't going to be problematic or threatening or uncomfortable even if you trouble that later on but it's building that trust, isn't it? It's whatever creates that trust. Sometimes it is the IP, sometimes it's the genre, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just that context. But you've got to have the trust across the threshold into whatever yeah. that context might be. Yeah, definitely. And so I find that, and when it's bad is when usually right from the off, that is wrong. Because there have been things that I've been at that I felt in danger. <laughs> Oh no. Yeah. That's not, you know, and there, 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 there is some of that excitement, I think that people can have of you signed your waiver. This is what you're going to get, you know? Um, And I I think there's an audience for that kind of work. That's sort of like haunted house, excitement, adventure, uncertainty, Mm -hmm. danger work. Yeah. Um, But I think that, you know, just, um, just as I think a lot of interactive theater has suffered from the fear that a lot of audience members have of being called on mm. in an improv sense mm-hmm. um, and, and how that, that we're sort of still working to undo that perception. Um, I think that that sort of danger work also is a perception that we're sort of working to undo. Yes, and I, I think some of that came out of participatory work in the 60s and 70s. Oh, definitely. Where it was extremely, ag- from San, a lot of it coming out of San Francisco, actually, interestingly, mm-hmm. but was really aggressive, called on, well, didn't call on people to do things they didn't want to do, but forced them to do things they didn't want right. to do. Right, right. And I think you're right. I think there's a, as soon as people hear that word participation, it strikes cold fear into the hearts of some people because mm-hmm. of that history that sits with that and even down to pantomime some people oh you know, yeah I can are see terrified that. of being called or <sighs> called on by the dame to do something and so I think that word participation I've noticed pretty much every company sidesteps that term <laughs> yeah yeah well because, because it, connotation. It, it's a, it hints at being made to feel vulnerable without consenting to it yeah you know, or mocked. Yes, very much so. And because it comes out of that either pantomime or stand-up mm-hmm. as well. And so you're right. I think there's there's a fear of being victimized in a way that you will feel uncomfortable not be able to respond to. And so I think participation carries, unfortunately, that that history and yeah, that fear. A, there's, a real, there's a real weight to that. And I find that a lot of what we've done has been trying to really un, like um, really underline to our audience that they are safe doing this show. They will be taken care of. It will mm-hmm. be okay. We're not going to, we will, we will call on them, but like only with love, you know? Yes. Like that, that there's, they will feel supported. They will not feel thrown out or you can't do yeah. it wrong. You're not gonna yes. fail. And, and there is skill, isn't there? What, um in being a maker and a performer, you start to get a sense of who you can call on in, in a room yeah, and, and who might want to kind of put themselves forward, who, who would respond well to that. And I think you do, after time, get a sense 
of when people are more willing to do that. I mean, don't get me wrong, always get it right. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you never quite know. But, um, you know, in, and in Reboot, there are at least a couple of very specific moments where we are depending on the audience to mm -hmm. take an action that we don't have control of them taking. And, um, yeah. and that's a vulnerable spot for both the audience and the performers. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think there's risk, there's risk from both sides. And I, as a performer, find that exhilarating. I, that's something I love well, about it's, it's the moments, it's the moments that make the show feel the most special. Mm -hmm. But if you get an audience member who just doesn't want to engage in it, <laughs> there's not a lot you can do. No. <laughs> and I make one-on-ones. So, and I make one-on-one stuff that is not fictional. So it's about two people coming together and doing something for real in that moment mm. so if my audience do not engage there mm. is literally no show at all <laughs> see and i uh i've done that too but i call it being an uber driver <laughs> and there's there's a risk because you're but what i like about it is there's a mutual vulnerability so the risk is the same for both yes participant and for performer and that collaboration then becomes something when it happens I think really magical because it's something that happens in the moment it's consented to and yeah. it's done together with both taking a risk yeah. on that's, each other that's really that's, I mean that that's the hope for the transcendence that we want from this art form yes yes absolutely and sometimes I feel very robbed when something promises that and then doesn't really deliver it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always very wary about promising it because I never know from show no. to show whether it's gonna, whether no. it's gonna be there or not. But that's true of traditional theater too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, um, just to round off our sort of discussion about um, sure. terminology, because I ask everybody about this. How do you feel about the word immersive? <laughs> Ooh, um, <laughs> uh, I, I like the word, um, but I do sometimes think that it conveys with it a feeling of uh, an expectation to engage in the lived world more fully. And that can be, you know, like, um, uh, so when I was, when I was young, one of the reasons that I really liked theater was because it felt like a real world that I could inhabit that had different rules than my own. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I liked that, but one of the things I always kind of dealt with was, you know, there's this audience there and there's a backstage there and that sort of breaks that illusion of that. Mm -hmm. um, so how do, we, how do we go further into that? And I thought film might be more immersive because, you know, it's more realized, but actually it's way less immersive because it's yeah. so broken up in terms of how it's made. Um, uh, but role-playing games and video games kind of do that immersive thing um, yeah. quite a bit in different ways. And so I, I've always kind of felt like immersive in terms of theater has this question of um, uh, what, I would, what I would call the porous fourth wall, where it's a fourth wall, but we don't quite know where it is. It's in, not invisible completely, but no. we're spending our entire time trying to sort of find the edges of it. And sometimes you really find the edge of it and you're like, oh, that's obviously, you know, either in an interaction or you see the exit sign or you, you know, see the seams on the set. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you like turn a blind eye to those moments? But, but I think 
you know, we're never going to create a truly, truly 100% immersive experience because we will always know that the boundaries of creating safety need to be there for both sides in order to feel like they are comfortable and okay. Yes. So, so I'm okay with it as a buzz term, indicating the type of theater that it means. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I use interactive, but interactive means different than immersive. Sometimes yeah. I use experiential, but experiential also implies different things than interactive mm -hmm. and immersive. Um, sometimes we've used hands-on, which uh, signifies different things. Mm -hmm. um, we use plays with puzzles as our term because it oh. signifies that it lives in the escape room world, but it also lives in the theater world. Um, and that's very specific to our company. I'm sure other people could use it. It's not trademarked or anything, but um, <laughs> but noting, <laughs> you know, get it, get it while get it, get it while you can. Um, but uh, but you know, for me, I think that that notion of finding a term that helps identify and differentiate it from other types of theater is really important. Um, yeah. and it's it's kind of hard to find. You know, we're, we're always playing that game of choosing the right words that are going to help the marketing and increase the Google visibility and mm -hmm. so many other factors that go into that. Who, what, are, what are people's likes on Facebook that are going to correlate with marketing mm -hmm. for this show, you know? Well, and I think it's a lot of companies in the British scene feel the same at the moment as well. Like it's a necessary term because audiences do recognize it and there are certain expectations that come with it, which is sometimes also problematic because like you said, there are sort of the gold standard of it is seen as one thing, even though that's only one way of kind of making Absolutely. that kind of work. Yeah. <laughs> but it has become synonymous. But I, but I think producers still want it used, especially here. So yeah. it pervades. And like you said, it, it becomes part of those keyword searches. It becomes part of, of tracking yeah. So in a marketing way. And until that's not useful, I think it's going to... It will to, continue to persist. It will continue. And um, as an academic, it's my job and my peers as well to think about how we might conceptualise it. So there's lots of work being done in that way, but that takes an inaudibly slow amount of time in academia sure. to get from yeah. the academy into, <laughs> into culture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One, because we never have time anymore to write our books to get them out, but also academic publishing processes are mad slow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think something like this, right? It's it's all about how does it get visibility, you know, mm. in the broader culture. And you know, Punch Drunk has really done um done something kind of amazing in terms of creating a visibility for this type of work. But yeah. the trade-off of them getting that visibility or anyone getting that visibility is whatever gets popular is what people think it is. Yes, yes, No. So we we actually had a long-standing show here in the Twin Cities. It ran for, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years called Tony and Tina's Wedding. Um, and it had a large cast, uh, lots of performers. Um, audience was guests. They were guests at the wedding and various scenes played out. It was not immersive in the sense that it was um, a deeply enriched environment, but it was immersive in terms of the way the audience was expected to engage with the type of theater that it was or what their expectations around their engagement with performers was. And, um, and I think that's sort of the thing that people are kind of coming at 
immersive with in my culture is sort of the history of those kinds of immersive interactive shows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that I guess I wouldn't have thought of as immersive theater, but really hit all of, they check all the boxes. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's right now. It's just about trying to give some visibility to the different modes that sit across that spectrum of work that might sit under that giant umbrella mm-hmm. of kind of cultural immersivity or immersion or immersive theater. Uh, and just starting to give a bit more visibility to some of the different kinds. And that's one of the reasons I do this podcast in reality, actually, sure, is to try to draw attention to some of those other practices and give voices to people who are making work that isn't just large scale free roaming, um, kind of environmentally based mm-hmm. work, because there's so much. And also the rich histories attached to a lot of this work, which has been around for a lot longer than the term immersive and comes out of lots of different genealogies and family trees that have yeah. roots all the way back to Dionysus, some of it. So mm-hmm. Well, you know, I when we built when we built Cabal after afterwards, there's, you know, in that in that show, there's communing with the dead, there's going into the underworld, there's transcendentalism, there's trans states. Um, uh-huh. and I realized after I built it, I was like, Oh, I made a Dionysian mystery cult. Yeah, I was going to say you made a Greek play. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, huh, okay, cool. <laughs> okay, um, so um, I know time is, is marching on and it's getting quite late here. And there's yes. there's a million other things that we could talk about. Absolutely. Um, but there, there, there will hopefully be future opportunity to do that. But people who are listening, um, what can they look forward to from you in the future? And what's the best way for them to sort of keep abreast with what you're doing? Sure. Um, we are online at walkingshadow.org. Uh, you can sign up for our mailing list there and get information about our current show, Reboot, which runs until February 27th. Um, and the hopeful soon return of our immersive show, Cabal. Um <laughs> And uh, there are also, if you're interested on that website, you can find in our history pages, full walkthroughs of our performances of 1926 Pleasant and Saboteur, Mm -hmm. our two earlier immersive shows, including photos, details of the puzzles, some creator notes about how they were built and significant portions of the text. Which is fabulous. That's such a good resource because yeah, it a was, lot of other companies that just don't have that kind of access. It was our best way of creating a record of what we had done. Mm-hmm. Yay, that makes me very excited. <laughs> <laughs> and are you active on Facebook and Twitter? We are active on Facebook. We are occasional on Twitter, but we, we have a presence there. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Walking Shadow Company, and you can find us on Twitter at Walking Shadow TC. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me, because I know what it's Absolutely. like when you're the day before show launch is always a little hectic, or it's that quiet moment of... Uh, calm before the madness it feels it feels a bit calm i gotta say so i was gonna say the vibe is very very calm and chilled but um maybe not so much this time tomorrow (laughs) we'll see (laughs) well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to reach out to all of my listeners and hopefully we'll get the chance to speak again yeah i hope so i really appreciate being on the air with you thank you lovely thank you so much i really hope you enjoyed that episode um it was really wonderful to get back to talking to people about making their work, which is something 
as you know, I feel really, really passionate about. So I'm, I'm super pleased to be able to bring some of those discussions back to you this year. And um, as I said, things are a little bit hectic in my life at the moment in terms of research commitments and teaching commitments and lots of other things going on. But I do hope this year I can bring you at least an episode a month of standard Tate and maybe some supplementary stuff through Tate Scholar as well, which will be really wonderful. So I hope that was interesting for you and that you've uh, sort of got an insight into some of the things that are happening outside of the UK, which is my usual focus. <laughs> so I don't have any news or any other updates at the moment. Um, my best advice is do subscribe um, if you don't want to miss out on any episodes because they can come out um, intermittently. So if you want to not miss anything, you'll need to be subscribed to find out when things are coming up. And I'll do my best to transmit that information as well. As usual, I absolutely love to hear from you. If you think you are someone I should be talking to, please do get in touch. Um, if you just do a quick Google, you'll probably find me and um, I check my work email <laughs> more than I check any of my other emails. And I work at the University of Birmingham. So if you want to find me, quick Google search with my name and the University of Birmingham and you'll find me in the best way to get in touch. So if you think you're someone I should be talking to, get in touch with me. Or if you're just someone who listens, please do reach out with any thoughts or comments that you have. Um, I always absolutely love to hear from people who are listening across the globe um, to Tate. So until next time, hopefully until February, but again, no promises, <laughs> but hopefully until next time, um, take care of yourselves and be safe in our global pandemic context. And you'll hear from me again soon. <laughs>